0: So for some dogs, I may consider medicines. For other dogs, I would, you know, explore other things. And I think it just really depends on, look, how is the dog being affected? How is the family being affected? Do we need something to help everybody cope for one month while we try and just get a training plan together, provide more outlets? Maybe there is challenges in providing outlets if the dog has, you know, no recall or aggression towards other dogs or things like that so i'll often consider potentially medication in a case like in that case Mm -hmm. obviously not knowing a lot about it um but yeah it'd be interesting to kind of try and place that dog on the spectrum and be like hey where do we think you fall on this
1: welcome to life with your dog podcast our focus is educating dog owners enthusiasts and dog trainers about ideas and how to train manage live and thrive with our dogs To teach dogs to live in our society while our dogs teach us how to live in the now. I'm your host, Panos Anagnostou.
2: And I'm your co-host, Luke Badman. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Life With Your Dog podcast. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Panos. And tonight we have Dr. Michelle Rasul as our guest. Hey, Michelle.
0: Hey, Hey, thanks so much for having me.
2: Thanks for coming on. Thanks for giving up your Tuesday evening,
1: you know, for us. I don't want
0: to peel the curtain too far back, but I didn't have a heap going on, but all the same, (laughs) very happy to be here.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that is awesome. Well, look, um, for the listeners that have been tuning in, two episodes ago, uh, me and Luke talked about the... Unnecessary use of medication, the overuse of medication, and we did mention you. And then I'm like, "Well, my God, we should actually be speaking to somebody who directly deals with this." So I, I did want to obviously speak about that whole topic. But before we do, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and you know what what got you into you know the line of work that you do now, and you know a little bit of an origin story is always
0: yeah. Good I don't for have a I don't have a Marvel worthy one, but um, yeah, uh, a lot of people kind of you know curious about my history cuz i basically for for those who are listening i'm a vet but i also work very closely in behavior and training um i guess my origin story is i you know like everybody i got a dog uh i got a dog at about 18 or 19 i still have him today i started training at my local uh training club and just kind of fell in love with the with the you know the industry and the magic of of dog training and just building these really awesome bonds um so i had my dog from uh, you know the the very beginning period. Actually, I must have been a bit older than eighteen. Eventually, got into vet school, did the whole vet vet degree. Really enjoyed that, but really felt that there wasn't a heap of focus on behaviour because. Uh, very naturally, you can't be an expert on everything uh, when you come out of that degree. So, continue to do my training and development um, work alongside my vet stuff. And then I guess in the last 12 months, I've kind of taken that out on its own a little bit. I've started to do behavior consulting no longer in the GP setting in the clinic. Um, And I did the most professional development that anyone can do. And I got a Malinois, (laughs) which is basically 24-7 professional development. Exactly. Uh, How long
1: were you a general? vet for?
0: So, I'm still a general practice vet. I still work a couple of days in the clinic. Um, I really love that work. I think it's really great for building rapport with people and seeing, um, you know, dogs throughout their whole life. I love that. Um, So, I graduated in 2016. So, I've been working as a vet since 2017.
1: Awesome. And what got you into specifically working with behaviour?
0: Yeah, I think... Um, I had always had an interest in animal behaviour. So when I was much younger, I used to um, work a lot with horses and training as well. Um, And so it was quite a natural progression. When I was in uni, I actually kind of wondered, "Eh, do I really want to be a vet or would I be actually happy working with behaviour? I think that's a really tough question to answer because I love the veterinary behaviour work I do, Um, but I also love the science of learning and, um, you know, application of behaviour. Um, so I, I did feel that maybe, you know, vet on its own, um, wasn't quite giving me, I guess, general practice vet stuff does have a lot of behavior. Um, but I have done most of my ongoing learning through kind of more practical stuff. Um, so more hands-on kind of dog, dog training in particular. Um, so yeah, I just continued to kind of hone my skills in that area as I was working in general practice.
2: How old were you when you knew you wanted to become a vet? (laughs)
0: That's such a classic thing, isn't it? So many like young people. I think very young people. think Yeah, that's be why. A vet. <laughs> that's
2: why I asked. I was like, "Is it young or was it later yeah, on?"
0: Yeah, no, it was very young. So my my old dog, who's thirteen or thirteen now, is is named Harriet, and he's now named after a very famous vet, James Harriet, um, who was books that my mum used to read me when I was really tiny. And as far as I can remember, I always wanted to be a vet.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> Oh, that's so cool answer. that you had a, <laughs> yeah. a a lifelong dream and and you've become that. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, for sure. It was a pretty windy kind of road. I actually ended up doing a music degree first, and then going through science, and then pivoting into vet. But I think that journey makes makes all the difference. I think then just going straight into something just because you wanted to do it as a youngster is, you know, maybe not a great reason to do it. I think exploring other options to be really sure by trying stuff that you're like, yeah, it's not for me. That's okay. Yeah. I think is really important.
2: And no one says you can only have one interest. I'm guessing you're pretty <laughs> yeah. into music if you did a whole degree in it.
0: I Yeah, I've definitely dropped off a little bit. I think I'm much more of an enjoyer than a performer these mm. days. But, I yeah, I really value the stuff. Do you play any instruments? There. So, I studied jazz uh, saxophone, actually, um, but I don't play currently. Okay. Um, but um, it's funny how many dog training people are kind of aligned in that. Um, so, one of my close buddies down here, um, Scott, who works locally for um, for another dog training kind of um, a business that he owns, is actually also a jazz saxophone player. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a small world in some ways.
2: Was, was playing an instrument a requirement to have that degree or not? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah but sense. I think in so many ways, um, you know, probably you folks see this too, is, um, you know, working with animals is a very creative process and it's all about communication and a lot of the time it's about performance. And so, there's actually a heap of parallels, I think, between music or art and and training in some ways. Well,
1: I was going to say it's really cool that you decided to do the art before the science because I was speaking <laughs> to um a client today and he's you know, an amateur dog trainer and he wants to get into it. And he's also got a little young Malinois, probably like five months old. And like straight off the bat, he said to me, cause he's, he's, he works at Petto. So he had his dog behind the counter a a German shepherd, like forced its way around the counter and gave him a bit of a fright. So now the dog's been a little bit dodgy around other male dogs. And um, so before we got started straight away, he's like, so we have a second window for socialization, this and that. And he's, and, and I'm like, it's, really cool to know the theory it's really cool to know the windows and the opportunities for when something's going to happen and the clinical side of it like the things that you can see on a piece of paper however Mm -hmm. and if you get into training just with that sort of clinical kind of mindset it could be really tough because there is an art and there is a feeling to it and um anyway i said and i mentioned that to him like you know don't forget the feel as well as the theory, the feel is just as important and we adjust to what's happening, you know what I mean? Be- otherwise, it's either doom or gloom. But um, but it's really cool that I was going to mention that you've got the feel uh, along with the science, and I think that really is what's needed, especially for, you know, some of the things that we're going to discuss today is that you can't just be so based on theory only. You do need experience and hands-on.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, it is it is a lot of creativity in in all of this and that includes for vet as well like um you know we've done some really cool stuff um in the clinic where you know we've worked with you know, particularly in rescue situations where you're like, "Well, we just got to make this work," and you know, kind of building stuff to, you know, splint legs and you know, trying to work out things that there haven't, there aren't products invented for. And um, it's it is a really creative industry as a whole. I think the vet industry, which is it's kind of fun too. No day is ever the same twice. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. What sort of typical behaviours do you prefer to work with in a behaviour vet sort of situation? And what are the most common issues that you come across?
0: Yeah, um, I I think it's really important. I often really find it hard when I ask trainers this question exactly and they say, I work with everything because <laughs> it always makes me a little bit worried about that. Um, But I work with quite a broad cut of behaviours. I think the dogs that I really like to work with are dogs that have already been working with trainers that have, you know, some good foundational skills, have play skills, et cetera, and are struggling despite that. Those are the dogs that I really like. And most of those dogs tend to have issues around, um, you know, high levels of arousal um, and they're generally high drive dogs. Um, unsurprisingly, as the owner of a high drive dog, I like working with those kind of dogs. Um, and many of those dogs' behaviours will sort of um, topple over into uh, aggression or anxiety, um, which are often, of course, very closely linked. Um, those are definitely the dogs that I really have a passion for working with. Um, but a typical day for me can be pretty varied. Um, My clinical role is my general practice clinical role is sort of based in the beautiful leafy inner eastern suburbs of Melbourne, which tends to attract a lot of, um, you know, beautiful cavoodle and those kind of poodle mixes. So usually in my GP role, I see a heap of Um, timidity and separation anxiety would be the major things I probably see in clinic. Um, In my GP, uh, sorry, in my behaviour service, I, of course, see a much broader uh, cut of the behaviours of the dogs of Melbourne. And typically there, I tend to deal with um, more complex things. So, compulsive behaviours. So, I've seen a couple of patients today with compulsive behaviours, which is usually things like tail spinning or light chasing. Um, aggression, uh, really significant fears or phobia kind of things, whether it's noises or, um, you know, other kind of novelty challenges. And definitely alongside some very skilled trainers, I do deal with pretty significant aggression as well.
1: So would you say that you're seeing the, some of the most difficult type of behaviors? Because if it was a not so severe behavior, you probably would suggest Training rather than seeking behaviour? Or would, do you also offer like obedience training and giving lifestyle for dogs and yeah. you know preventing some of the issues to become an issue in the first place?
0: For sure. I do offer preventative, complete preventative services. I don't get a lot of uptake on that, unfortunately. That's mm-hmm. okay. I understand most people only start looking for a vet when they have a problem. Yep. Um, none of my behaviour consults are based on medicine. So if someone comes to see me, it's pretty open as to what we'll look at. Um and so even if someone comes to me, you know, I've got several clients, you know, a month that will come and see me, I'll be like, "Yeah, don't stress. I don't think we need to consider medicine for you." Um and usually together we'll start, you know, putting some foundations down. Um just because of my time, I usually pair them with a trainer, but we'll often start some foundational skills together whether it's, you know, charging a clicker or starting some free shaping, just some really simple stuff to get dogs learning. Um so even through my behavior service, I definitely do see some dogs that, you know, aren't really severe in their behavior. I love working with those dogs too. It's really, really fun to be able to kind of, you know, change the trajectory of where a dog's behavior is going.
1: Would you say that that approach, because that already covers another answer. <laughs> and the, and the question was, do you always prescribe medication? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and in saying that, You answered it perfectly to to what I would like to hear is that, well, let's like see what's going on. Let's work on what we need to work on because everything that you're doing currently doesn't seem to be fulfilling the dog appropriately. Hence why Mm -hmm. these behaviors have manifested. And and what does a typical kind of consult look like? Like what are the things that you would like to look for? How do you assess a, a client off the bat?
0: The first thing that I do, which gives me a heap of context is I send out a questionnaire well ahead of my appointment. So I can kind of see what's really important to me is what the client or the dog owner actually thinks is the problem, because I might have opinions about how I like to run my dogs. um, And often people are really surprised to hear that my dogs sleep in the bed and they sit on the couch. And they steal stuff from me out of my pockets when I'm training and I'm like, that stuff is fine with me. And obviously to someone else, that's, you know, absolutely terrible behaviour. So the first thing that I really ask my clients is what why are you here? What are the things that are worrying you? Um, usually I can get an impression from there about, you know what we'll need to do. But my initial consults are usually, I always tell my clients, they're usually just a lot of talking. It's not a lot of doing. It's hearing about what's happening. We try and identify where behavior has come from, you know, genetic links or early learning experiences, the impacts on environment. Um, and then from there, in that first consult, we usually try and get three things nailed down. And the first is a management plan. Um, and a lot of the times I know um one Maybe frequent comment I hear from trainers is the vet just said avoid everything. Um, and I usually do tell people in that first appointment, hey. You just need to avoid the things that are causing your dog's problems because we haven't got any coping mechanisms. Um, So it's not a long-term plan. It's just while we're kind of sorting out your stuff, we just need to avoid stuff. Um, But oftentimes it's more nuanced than that. So it might be um, about, you know, minimizing visual access to the front of the house if you've got a dog with sort of territorial behavior, um, or it might be actually, you know, instructing people that they can't pat your dog while you're walking on the street. Just stuff that we can take the load off the dog's brain while we're just trying to get more information and develop a plan. Um, The second thing that I develop is a behaviour modification plan. And for most dogs that are kind of very green, um, that's usually looking at uh, marker training and developing a bit of flexibility in the dog's thinking and really starting to consider and um, change emotional state. And the third thing is medicine, which, like I said, I don't use for all dogs. Um, I often look at supplements and uh, I guess other adjunctive things that we can consider in those dogs that maybe don't need it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the major way that I approach every behaviour case um, on top of, you know, really hearing what the client has to say.
2: Would you would you agree that there is maybe an increase in the prescription of of medicines, like as in the theme of what Panos was talking about? Mm two episodes ago was basically along those lines. So that's, you know, you, no one has to agree with that. So that's what I'm asking right. you. And if you do, what would you say the reason is for that? In I your think, opinion, obviously.
0: Yeah. I think there's probably a couple of things at play. Um, I think that historically there's been in humans as well, a big stigma around medication. And I think that's actually like for mental health conditions. Mm. And I actually think that's changing a lot Uh, which is great. I think therefore medication is much more in people's mind uh, when they think about mental health issues or behaviour issues. So I have uh, some clients in the GP setting that approach me specifically for medicines. Um, And as you can imagine, I offer a lot of other (laughs) options. And for some people, they are just very, very clearly like, we just want medicine. We're not going to do the thing. And, you know, you could make an argument that, okay, like, you know, if this dog's genuinely suffering and we have an option of, you know, using medication to manage that, eh, maybe that's a better Mm. option than doing nothing. I think they're both pretty bad options, but obviously when you're caught between those two maybe less than ideal options, um, you know, there might be many vets and I might be one of them that might make a decision to use medicine in that case. Um, I think the other thing that's probably a bit more challenging is that when you come to a vet clinic for a solution uh, for a behaviour problem and you're seeing a vet that maybe just doesn't see as much behaviour stuff, that, you know, when when you're a vet, your tools are usually medicines. And so there are, you know, many vets that might not feel comfortable developing a behaviour plan or they may not own a dog or a cat or whatever you've come with today uh, to know kind of what's normal or what kind of stuff needs to be done. So I think when clients are approaching vets for that kind of advice that it can sometimes be hard for, you know, if you approach me about a really complex orthopedic thing, I'm really going to flounder and I'm probably not going to be really sure what to do. And so I think some vets just making the best of what they can offer. Um, As for whether there's true increases in the numbers overall for prescription, I actually don't know. And I don't know if there's really any evidence. Um, You know, there's been some interesting chat around the vet circles about whether we're seeing increased incidence of behaviour problems after um, lockdown and COVID-19 sort of has had a big impact. And I'm not even sure we have anything apart from anecdotal evidence to say that. But I, I wonder whether that's playing a part of it, whether... There are, you know, some missing socialization or foundational skills.
2: Have you seen years. that increase in stuff since the pandemic in your clinic?
0: It's really hard for me to identify that because I've also seen specifically behavior. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm going to see behavior cases all day. I I think there are a lot more people that are home a lot, which maybe means that these there are more dogs that are not left alone. But we also have good evidence to kind of suggest that many dogs will develop separation anxiety, even with practicing being alone, that there are big genetic links. And so an interesting thing to consider would be, are we just seeing more dogs? Because um, certainly when... You know, my team have shared the numbers of the dogs we've seen in the clinic. We had like a hundred and fifty percent increase in the number of clients in right. two thousand and nineteen or something, or two thousand and twenty. Like just crazy, like basically so one point five times. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So whether we're just seeing more dogs, I don't know. There's so many moving parts, aren't there? There's, there's
1: many variables, I guess, that that do affect that. Look, I spoke to um a groomer yesterday. They called me to come drop some cards off, and um, I think. In terms of are there more dogs being prescribed? I think there's just more people that are searching for what hmm. people like you do. And especially where and what we were speaking about in that previous podcast is that well, if more if okay, so in the last 10 years there's been more people getting dogs. Number one, there's more people looking for dog training or some sort of behavior intervention because it's become a more socially acceptable thing. Like 30 years ago, dog trainers were very rare. Um, and they weren't something that were weren't somebody that was going to people's houses frequently. So in the last twenty years, especially dog training and dog behavior has become a, a massive thing. So of course, there's going to be more people looking for that service. But I think I've noticed in the last you know couple of years that there's been a lot more medic like people that are offering the advice that they should be on medication. And I and I think, for my anecdotal opinion, is that. If people are less willing to use any particular technique or tool or methodology and they're 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 limiting their their skill, their skill set, I think it may be an easier or maybe the more appropriate option. And from what I mentioned in, in that episode, or even when I even recently I put it up on Instagram where um, a behavior vet, and again, i have not shitting on behavior vets, obviously, i have recommend one of my clients to see you. So like I'm I'm all for it when it's appropriate. But when this Doberman, four-year-old Doberman hasn't gone out, left the house for six months because they said the dog cannot ever be walked because his anxiety is through the roof and, you know, X, Y, and Z, and this is the medication he's been on with no advice, no advice at all about exercise, enrichment, for like any fulfillment, just this is what you need to do. And that's it. And within that session, we went for a walk, showed him how to walk a dog and you know, use market training and obedience training and already within a couple of weeks from from speaking with them that there's been so much progress. I just think that it's just so lazy and I'm so happy to to um to know somebody like yourself that is like, well, let's let's have a look at what's going on before we jump the gun and have this prescription already ready before I've even seen the dog. I just think it's just so it's so upsetting.
0: Yeah, I think you nailed something there which I think is good work is good. You know, when someone does good work, it's good. And when someone doesn't do good work, it's not good in the Mm -hmm. way that um, if someone approaches me in a GP consult in the 15 minutes that I have, that they're booked for a vaccine and they kind of lay this stuff on me, I can't do good work. And yeah. I think you know, this year I'm back at uni studying. I'm like a sucker for punishment, <laughs> um, and you know, it's really been an interesting look for me to have a look at how the behaviour specialists do stuff. Because I know there's there's a lot about you know, specialist behaviourists, which there aren't many in Australia. So I think most of your clients are probably coming from general practice. Usually, I I don't know that there, there could be, but most. Of these kind of behaviors, there's a couple.
1: There's a couple of people in the area, but yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, most behavior vets or specialists have like three hour consults, which are like really intense, where they hear everything, and they usually do develop behavior plans. I think the difference in behavior plans between vets and trainers are usually about about, I guess, the purpose of them. I think for many mm. vets, their focus is on emotional change, which when we think about it as trainers, that is also our goal too. Our goal isn't for just sure. to suppress behaviour because we no. know behaviour doesn't exist in a vacuum. If we take away, for instance, my tail-chasing dog today, if I if I punish tail-chasing and I take away that as an option, I haven't changed the dog's emotional state, no. which is usually um, getting rid of I term it really easily for my clients, yucky feelings. I don't know what those yucky feelings are to a T, but for most dogs, they're feelings of frustration, arousal, anxiety. So, if I punish that, I'm not getting rid of it, I might suppress the behavior. Mm-hmm. I think trainers are generally very outcomes focused, which you know I've got a foot in both camps. And I think it's really important to have measurable outcomes where we can see the dog succeeding and get dogs operant. I think that's really important. Yeah. I think many vets come from a point of view where they are very focused on emotion and they want to see emotional change. And we can see emotional change, or we can only infer it in the dog through watching, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's much less about skills and operancy and, uh, I guess, maybe more measurable outcomes in those kind of ways. They are both measurable in their own way. And so sometimes I do see the disparity between them where it's like, cool, I can have a dog that feels great but has no OB. (laughs) Mm. Obedience, I can't manage the dog. I can't, I can't have reliable skills that I can know um, uh, will hold and proofed in multiple environments. And I think that's probably where the mismatch occurs. Um, in saying that, there is good work and there is maybe not very good work. And I think for anyone that has a medicine plan and it hasn't been explained to you, what are the goals of this medicine plan, what is the time frame, and hasn't been back for a revisit. I think that can be really frustrating when you feel like you just get handed medicines, and you're not and you're spinning your wheels and not going anywhere. Mm. Um, I think that can be really, really frustrating for people and trainers. Completely, I would understand that.
1: Are your goals when, if a dog needs to be prescribed behaviour medication, the goal is for eventually the dog to come off it, so that we use? So again, I agree with you. Yes. We, we see a behavior and a behavior is because of, of we'll say in a very simple terms, and you mm. could correct me if I'm wrong, but you have behavior at the end, you have the thinking, but then you have the feeling. Feeling mm. makes thoughts, thoughts makes actions. Mm. So, if we only change thinking, we're only changing something for today and tomorrow. But if we change how someone feels, then we're, we're changing behavior for the long-term. And you, you do all of the appropriate things that you need to do for that individual dog and if it feels like look the medication is going to help how the dog feels along with all the things that we do in everyday life is there a time where we say let's wean off these drugs so that now the dog can be at that happy place forever
0: yeah i think that's a, a great question and a really common one that clients come to me with I think my goal is always to have the dog on as minimum intervention as possible, and that would hold true to you, I assume, as trainers, which is we want to walk our dogs on the least equipment we can and we want to use the, you know, the the least invasive, minimal aversive kind of interruptions that we can to get our dog living the life they want. I think when we're talking about... Um, some behavioural changes, there are really good chances that we get dogs off medicines. And these are particularly if, let's say, like you mentioned, this little male puppy that's been rushed by a couple of dogs, well, I don't think he'd be a great use case for medicine depending on what's going on, but let's say this dog develops a really big fear around other dogs. If we jump on that quickly, and like I said, not, not for this case specifically, but we go, look, yeah. this dog has had a, an experience that's had a really big effect on it. We, you know, use medications maybe to reduce the level of adrenaline that this dog feels for fifty exposures to other dogs. Then we've got a really great chance that we haven't got a dog that's got, you know, um, big other pre-existing problems. That that's a, probably a great candidate to get off medication in the long term. Um, I see some dogs and that that have from eight weeks as a young puppy come home with really intense concerning behaviours. So, light chasing or shadow chasing or significant timidity or even aggression in young dogs. And what's likely is that those dogs maybe have a bigger genetic component that they're built in a certain way that always predisposes them to behaving in a certain way.
2: Do you notice certain breeds being predisposed to that kind of thing?
0: Yeah. So, we, we have good data to show that there are traceable certain behavioural traits between lines of dogs or down lines of dogs. Um, It's not always as simple as mum and dad had this problem, so pup has this problem. And sometimes we might only see one dog or a couple of dogs in the litter that have this problem. Or sometimes I see multiple dogs from the same litter. I think the internet is super cool because so many of my clients now know dogs from their litter and they see what they're up to. Is They go, well, my dog has aggression the other dog has separation anxiety and the third dog has some other problem and we go, oh, you know, there's something behavioural popping up through all these dogs. But to answer your question, yes, there are some behavioural traits that are much more common in certain breeds. Um, So if we think about bull terriers, we know that those dogs are really prone to a lots of fixated type behaviours, particularly tail spinning. Uh, And we can actually trace genetically through those dogs. We can find the little, you know, part on the gene that gets passed down. So there's like
2: markers in their biology that will show that.
0: Yeah, for sure. So it's pretty new. um, But, you know, now we even have cool tests where we can, you know, do mouth swabs for dogs to, you know, when we're breeding dogs to prevent breeding certain, you know, problems into them so um for instance uh, like you know in border collies there's some eye conditions or you, you you might have heard of mdr1 which is a certain genetic condition that predisposes dogs to reactions to medicines um, we can actually swab dogs for those kind of things and i think that the boffins are on it i think in the next 10 years we'll be able to you know maybe even swab dogs to try and avoid breeding and behavioral problems to them
1: is that like using CRISPR to change that
0: Oh, I I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but Using um,
1: what CRISPR? Well, like they um, so it's this the uh, and I'm gonna fully butcher it, but it's <laughs> like a um, so for example, they used CRISPR, which is like it changes the DNA strain of, of an individual. So they use it with these cats. They got these cat, um, a wild cats that were living somewhere in Australia. They changed their genetic um code so that when they breed, they will only make male cats. So then their population will drop really quickly because they're only making male cats. So within like three generations or so, no, no, one generation, right? Because you're only making male cats, that's not going to make any more female cats. And then yeah. they are significantly lowering the population by using this sort of technology, which is pretty crazy. Wow. wow. I'd never heard of any of that.
0: <laughs> I missed that one too, but that's some Gattaca-level spooky
1: stuff. I saw it. It was like an ABC, um, like, Late at later night, they show some really crazy stuff. Um, it was like a documentary about. It. I'm like, this is not real, and I checked it out. and I've and I've heard it mentioned in other podcasts before. So anyway, I, I, I do. But I think this is another interesting thing. What would make a neurotic behavior may also be. The traits which makes that dog really good oh, at something at 100%. what he was supposed to be you know mm. and i think this to is to what extent
2: should we be playing god like with, with that well i like, think
1: you know when we see more dogs that have issues because there's like a whole bunch of people that have no business owning certain types of dogs and if they're not doing the things that are true to that dog's nature and fulfilling it appropriately and then we're just you know trying to manage or or or, or drug them or change their genes so that they aren't that thing anymore I know maybe there's some place for that because we're not using these dogs on mass scales to do their traditional job, but I think that's a bit of a philosophical and, and and a and a and a deep conversation of how much should we play God to change these dogs. But it's also our responsibility, right?
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think the trickiest thing is we are already changing dogs to the best of our ability through breeding. You know, True. we're already trying to breed superior dogs for for roles. Yeah. Um, I think that most of the time the dogs that I see are probably not from the most, you know, ethical or I guess behaviour-minded places. Like my clients might get beautiful show dogs that have zero, zero hip and elbows, lovely good scores for their hip and elbows, but, you know, maybe have been bred for different purposes than what my clients want. Um, I think a lot of them as well are just dogs from shelters or dogs from backyard breeders where genetics does weird stuff You know, I always tell clients uh, or or people, um, my brother is a really high-level athlete. He's like an amazing sprinter. I promise you I am not. And we have Mm. the same genetics, you know. It's pretty cool like how genetics can play out and there are always outliers and there are always weird things that happen and we think about what we know now in people um, when we think about, you know, even people that we know with mental health or behavioural traits or um, I guess – you know, how we behave is so nuanced that even if we clocked those behavioral traits, so we find this behavioral, you know, locus on the gene for tail chasing, it's not going to do a heap else for probably the rest of that dog's behavior. Um, Mm. You know, when we're talking about bull terriers, I think that even if we could remove that tail chasing locus, we're still probably dealing with a heap of other interesting you know, traits, you know, a real resistance to noticing pain and a really high arousal and potentially predatory drive, but those are still their own challenges. They're not going anywhere.
1: Yeah, good point. You know, when you said you, you, you and your brother have the same genes, is that is that true? You have the same genes? I mean, we don't specifically,
0: yeah. So yeah. we don't specifically, yeah. So Who we're obviously, yeah. we're not twins, um, sure. but, you know. And we- twins
1: have the same genes though, right?
0: Uh, well, I actually don't know.
1: Okay.
0: i don't do <laughs> um, that all. I guess, would. because yeah, they're identical. <laughs> Checks out. I'll,
1: we'll, I'm we'll no take doctor. That as given. Because <laughs> I know epigenetics is something that you can change your ge- genetic structure by the way that you live.
0: Yeah, and actually yep. we know that epigenetics has potentially even effects on, let's say, you know, pregnant dog. Her, her emotional state and experiences when pups are in utero um, can actually have effects on how pups uh, develop and things like that as well. So it's really complex and nuanced and we really don't understand a heap about of it. We are learning more, but even though we're learning more, we often can't affect these things because we don't always have autonomy and control over, you know, every step of a pup's development, even when we're developing them really intentionally, you know, things happen that we can't control.
1: It's like what comes to mind is you go to a, like, let's just say, a physio. There's certain physiotherapists that are so, well, this is what the theory says. And this is the thing that you have to do. And then you have another physio. So I've gone to a couple of different ones for like my knee issues. One of them was very textbook and it's like, this doesn't seem practical. And then the other guy was, oh, I actually work out. I actually do all the things that you do. And I'm also somebody who knows about physiotherapy. And then his advice was so much more dynamic. It seemed so much more realistic with the steps that I did with him. You start here, we go there. Every time I see you, we're revolving. So I guess one of my questions is what is the culture within the behavior vet world and how many of these people are getting their hands on dogs and actually working dogs rather than just talking about what they have read and studied and learned about? Because, you know, there's a big difference and, and I'm really excited about what you do is that you have the theory and you have the practical, you said that you you, you purchased a high drive dog on purpose because you love it and you're excited by it, but also you're doing the work all day in, day out. And, and I'm assuming your dog isn't on medication. hasn't got any issues because you're probably doing all the right things to fulfill that dog in, in day-to-day life compared I, to <laughs> only seeing it from theory. So go.
0: Yeah. I think it would be crazy to say that anyone's dog doesn't have any issues. That's the first sure. thing I she, want to put out there. Totally I, none, sure. I,
2: none of us. You know, none of us are without our issues <laughs> no, either, right? Like, exactly. That's nature. Like
0: I own yep. an 18-month-old Malinois and for anyone that's, you know, been through that or any 18-month-old dog, like there are days where I'm like, I am I am amazing, I am a god, I am the best and there are other days where I'm like embarrassed to, you know, uh, hold the other end of the leash. So sure. um, I think one thing I'm really um, a co- careful to to remember is that medicine is not failure. Dogs being on medicine is not failure. Totally. And if my dog needs medicine, the 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 comment that always makes me sad is that medicine is our last resort. Use it in a tool case. Use it judiciously. Let it be part of the many things that we have to, you know, offer our dogs to help them feel their best. Um So, circle back, what is the culture in the veterinary industry? Um, Maybe more specifically, behaviour vets. Um, I think a lot of, I'm not super into this circle of people. (laughs) I would say most of my friends tend to be trainers rather than vets, um, which, you know, maybe reflects more on my interests a little bit. Um, But I think a lot of them own dogs and they train. But I think many of them have a sort of different interest in the dogs that they train. I think um, they love training and they have trainable dogs. Um, I think a lot of them might own, you know, kind of like the Border Collie types or Kelpie types, like very um, generally collaborative type of dogs. And I don't think many, I don't know, but I don't see many people doing, you know, like sports, I guess, from, you know, in Victoria, we don't have bite sports, but those kind of things that are a bit more, I guess, rough and tumble. I think maybe it just attracts a different type of mm-hmm. person that maybe vets usually aren't. Um, so I don't. I think there's an interesting different cut of the 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 training stuff that obviously the the training that needs to be done for biddable kind of um, collaborative, relatively um, diligent working dogs uh, like your true herding dogs, working dogs, is very different than what you might need to do for dogs bred for, you know, combat or defence. Sure. Um, so I think that to say that people aren't training is probably not great, like, wouldn't be accurate, but they're mm-hmm. training for different stuff. You know, lots yeah. of people, I think, doing rallyo and Obedience and kind of, uh, you know, the more, I guess, just fun sports rather than anything too serious.
1: That, that's that's like, probably
0: a sweeping generalization, but I just don't know. Sure. But I haven't seen anyone around. I don't know. Have you guys seen anyone, any vets around doing that stuff?
1: Not really. No, I don't no. know personally. <laughs> I, I have a few clients that are vets, and mm-hmm. that's cool because we can really get into the, the the weeds of some really cool, you know, application of the theory. Where some people, I'm not talking super technical to people, but if somebody's like mentioning certain terms, I'm like, oh yeah, actually, that's what well, this is here, and we can, and it's really cool having somebody who's like a, like even a human psychologist Mm. is that the cool thing about dogs is that They they turn over very quickly. Yeah, Like they become older very quickly. So then you can see the results of your work very quickly. And you can see that even a week in a dog's life is kind of different for a week in a human's life. Like you can kind of like get more of a skill, I guess, from the dog. I'm just like thinking this off the top of my head. I haven't put that much thought into it, but I think you can see the fruits of your labor a lot quicker, which means you can put the processes of conditioning into play and you can start seeing it really quickly. And it's like, wow, this is interesting to see. It's just that, you know, I'm not that excited when I go see a GP and he's not in good shape. I just feel like, well, dude, how can I even get any advice from you? You don't even look like you're living your best life and you're supposed to be making my life to be my best life. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think it's in, it's important that like even and and I recommend people that get into training dogs you should be getting a hell of a lot of hands on dogs so you know what dogs are and what they what they can do and and I think you really become good at the craft when you get to know the animal and I think my my the the thing that I would like to see more of is that I want to see more just like if I was to go to the GP, for example, and say, I'm not feeling well mentally, I would like him to ask me the questions. Like you would probably ask him a questionnaire, like, how are you sleeping? What are you eating? Who do you hang out with? What are your goals and ambitions? Like, why do you feel like shit for? Let's- it-, it could be because you're eating McDonald's every day. <laughs> if we just change that, you may not need anything. And-, and yes, I agree. Medication to be the last resort. I think I would probably be someone who would say that is that only because you have to assess the dog first. You can't be like, "Oh, cool, on the phone." All right, no worries. Medication's coming to your house straight away. Like it's just like that's a that's a cop out too to the industry, you know. And um, and we have to also acknowledge that there are genuine people that are doing the work that you're doing. And we should never generalize just behavior vets and put them into like this camp of like, they they don't know. Like I don't want. To come across that way obviously you can understand my frustration mm. from being hands-on it's like what do you mean that person so i had a client just message me i'm just checking up on them seeing how they're going and i want to ask you this is on my list here to ask you um healthy dog high energy obviously cool family doing the work whatever still having some issues but then she says but he but the doctor was concerned about him being so skinny so And then in in the same sentence, it's like so he's on anti anxiety medication for it. And I'm like, I was confused because I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what's he on anti anxiety medication for? And she says, he reckons he's running at a high level of intensity, and maybe the medication will help him put on the weight. And I'm like, I've never heard that before. I'm actually going to speak to a doctor tonight. I want to ask you, (laughs) have you heard of that? Is there is that legit?
0: Yeah, it definitely is a legit thing. Obviously, without hearing the full history, Um, it it sounds you know. It would be weird if we said, if if you came into a 15-minute GP consult and said, my dog's not gaining weight and you left with only medicine for behaviour, that would be really unusual. The um, dog has
1: done blood tests.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, so. and I'm sure they've looked at diet and all these other things because it's cool. usually something much later down the track. Um, I have several patients with this kind of issue. Shout out to all my Vishla clients who are significantly overrepresented in this group of dogs. Totally. Uh, Vishlas <laughs> are amazing, but they are, you know, they're challenging in, inside and out. They're just here to to make their owners work and cook a lot, it seems. Um, They're absolute rock stars of a dog. Um, But there are kind of a group of, I guess, hyperactivity um, spectrum that's sort of identified in dogs. And there's lots of ways of grouping these things. And this is just the way that I like to think about it, which is on one end, we have hyperactivity. So, these are mentally normal dogs that just require um a higher level of input than the average dog mm-hmm. so many of our dogs would fall into that I think that if you know you know potentially I walked my dogs into a local clinic they'd be like yeah they're kind of more active than we would expect and you know more need more input and need more exercise and need more training than the the average dog the good thing for these dogs is that with increased exercise is that they feel great so they don't have a mental abnormality it's just that they require a bit more so it's not a sure. diagnosis it's just kind of maybe a label we might put on some higher drive or higher needs dogs as we move up that kind of um chain we have dogs that are maybe hyper reactive so they have big responses to the world and they respond in ways that aren't commensurate with the trigger that that affects them and that they really struggle to relax. And these dogs aren't usually anxious per se. They're just really kind of responsive. And those are so this where- dog
1: is sits in the backyard, here's the bird, boom on, boom, yeah, on, boom, right? on, boom, and on. It's we like, can imagine what?
0: if we transplanted this guy to a sheep farm, he'd probably not be a very functional worker mm-hmm. if he's getting distracted by stuff or forgetting to do his job. You know, I'm not saying that he couldn't be developed into a worker, but they're really big difference is that we give this guy exercise or you know we we get him doing more that doesn't help him because his problem isn't that he just needs more output the problem is his brain is telling him to work extra hard and mm-hmm. those dogs often are very busy and really struggle to relax and you know and and move from that sympathetic to parasympathetic drive. So we talk about fight and flight for sympathetic drive. Um, So those are dogs that are in that, you know, high arousal state. Our our parasympathetic drive is rest and digest. That stuff's really important. And so if the the body is running in this sort of high sympathetic drive um, often, then that can be challenging. At the really far end of this, we have this really unusual kind of um, condition where dogs genuinely 24-7 have a high sympathetic drive. So they have a high heart rate. They have a high metabolism. They are just running extra. And these dogs, we can see this physically on clinical exam. I don't think I've run into one of these dogs. I've just read about them in the literature. Um, So there are some dogs that truly have a medical you know, excess of things like adrenaline that affect them. And so they're not training cases where we go, look, if we just teach you to you know, crate and things like that, those dogs won't necessarily feel better. And those ones are definitely medicine cases. Yeah. Um, if we were to able to look inside their bodies, you know, to give it a general term, we would see that they look different from the average dog. Those dogs in the middle, often I think if we could kind of maybe give them a human diagnosis, might be part of the ADHD spectrum. Mm. And, you know, ADHD as a human diagnosis, is changing a lot about how we identify and treat it and um, as not a human doctor, I'm not as up-to-date with that. But, of course, there are many adjunctive things that we can do that aren't medicine to help dogs and people with kind of difficulties with managing arousal, but they are all on a spectrum. So for some dogs I may consider medicines. For other dogs I would, you know, explore other things and I think it just really depends on, look, it, how is the dog being affected? How is the family being affected? Do we need something to help everybody cope for one month while we try and just get a training plan together, provide more outlets? Maybe there is challenges in providing outlets if the dog has you know, no recall or aggression towards other dogs or things like that. So I'll often consider potentially medication in a case like in that case, mm-hmm. obviously not knowing a lot about it. Um, But yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of try and place that dog on the spectrum and be like, hey, where do we think you fall on this?
1: That's Mm. cool. I like that. Um.
2: Hey, guys, it's Luke. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment out of the podcast to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, Obviously, we don't just do this show just to hear our own voices. We love the fact that you guys take the time out of your day to listen to our episodes each and every week. And on that note, if you are enjoying it, we'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast listening app. So whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could hit pause on this episode and, and go and leave a review or a rating on the platform that you're listening into, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other people like yourself find the podcast. Uh, and helps us to reach more listeners and, and hopefully grow the show and grow the community around it. So we'd really appreciate it if you could, and thanks for listening.
1: What classifies as anxiety? And tell me what I, what you think about this anxiety and feeling anxious and the difference from a clinical mind.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. There are many, many ways to group that as well, which I think is really tough. Um, So anxiety as different to fear is that fear generally has a clear trigger. And when we remove the trigger, that the fear generally goes away. It's a sort of simplified way of explaining it. Anxiety is the feeling of what if. So even though nothing bad happens, what if? Even if I remove this, you know, worrying object, what if? Um, And so feeling anxious is the feeling of apprehension for future threat. And it can be really tough because you don't need evidence to feel that and you don't need it to be confirmed to feel it. So, for instance, I see a lot of dogs that are anxious coming into the vet clinic. Uh, I might do nothing apart from say g'day and look at them across from the room, feed them a treat. Those dogs will come back the next time and they're not going to go, oh, that's right, she was so nice. She didn't do anything. It was all good. They're going to come back probably escalating their worry because it's what if. Well, she didn't hurt me last time, but she's probably going to hurt me this time. Um, I guess that maybe some people make a distinction about feeling anxious and having anxiety. I wonder if you mean sort of about the generalised aspect of it.
1: Well, like I feel anxious like, oh, we're going to do a podcast tonight and I'm anxious but I'm not I don't think I have anxiety. I just think I'm alive. I feel anxious. Congratulations. You're alive. You're going to do something and it's important to you and that's cool. Yeah, that's um, your
2: nervous system telling you like that you're taking it seriously, I think.
0: Yeah. Sure. So, so like so
1: anxious is cool, but when is it anxiety?
0: So, I mean, frustratingly, everything is on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um behavior is is broadly falls into two camps, which is adaptive or maladaptive. So adaptive behaviours. Anxiety today made you write a list of questions to ask me and it made you check that your mic and your headphones were working before you got here. So it was completely adaptive for you and I'm hoping that it's reduced for you <laughs> as you've gone through the podcast very today. very right.
1: Thank you. Great. Yes.
0: I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> um, anxiety would be maladaptive if you, you know, kept dropping your questions and you couldn't remember, you know, what you were wanting to talk <clears> to me about. Um, So I guess that most people broadly would say that dogs or people that have anxiety probably have maladaptive anxious responses that don't help them to live kind of a fulfilled or purposeful life that actually inhibit them from doing that. Um, Fear is adaptive. It keeps us safe. And I guess for many dogs and people, being a little anxious also keeps us safe so for instance we take uh you know a herding dog that just double checks their work a couple of extra times they make sure they haven't left a sheep down the back paddock that dog is adaptive in their anxiety and it makes them maybe maybe we could argue that maybe that dog's not anxious it's more just highly aroused you know they're kind of again on a spectrum that dog that is so anxious that they keep running down the back paddock and leave all the other sheep is no longer adaptive in their anxiety. So Mm. when I'm making choices about what needs treatment for a dog or what needs intervention, it's about whether the behaviour is adaptive or maladaptive and also, I guess, more broadly, whether it's appropriate uh, in society. Mm, Um,
1: Good place to start.
0: Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) whether, yeah, I think those are probably the major ones and, you know, whether it's... Can measure it, So I guess the level is it, you know, you can be anxious about the doorbell going off, but if you're punching through the window, that's never going to be really appropriate. Mm. So, you know, whether the dog's responses are um, not reflective of the level of stimulus.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, because I've been saying this to people and I don't want to be spreading <laughs> misinformation, right? Um, so anxiety and excitement come from the same region of the brain, so your body will act similar physiologically. Correct or incorrect?
0: Broadly, I think probably correct in the way that I, look, anxiety and arousal are both mediated by adrenaline or noradrenaline. I usually just talk about adrenaline because everyone knows what it is, but adrenaline has another body called noradrenaline, which has similar effects around the body. But doesn't um, noradrenaline
1: only exist in the head and adrenaline's in the body?
0: Yeah, there's there's some really kind of pedantic, I guess, effects, you know, and they they both have different effects on, uh, you know, blood vessels, our heart and all kinds of things. It's It's probably not super important for everybody sure. to understand. I think that they both are peripheral, though. I think they... Both, both go around the body. Uh, that is this month's assignment for me. Actually, okay. already, so I should go and double my. I'm pretty check sure that's work. an Andrew
1: Huberman thing. So okay, <laughs> sure.
0: Um, I yeah, you could be right there, but I do use a lot of noradrenaline affecting medicines. Um, because that, I, I I guess to answer your original question, yes, I think that adrenaline uh, that that arousal and anxiety are very closely linked um, and that they can sometimes, dogs can sometimes flip between the two of them. Um, But I guess to go off on a little bit of a tangent, I think that being able to medically just mediate a dog's level of noradrenaline is actually pretty magic stuff because we're not messing with sedation. We're not causing a dog to be flat a dragon's mm. feet we're just taking off 10 or 15 percent or as much as we choose of arousal which is often really effective for a lot of dogs so i think it can be a really cool place to have just a little bit of a little bit more control while dogs are you know I guess when information goes into the brain, it goes to this emotional center, which you're probably, you know, talking about, which is um a very automatic part of the brain. Information goes in, that part of the brain just says, Hey, we're, re- we're releasing adrenaline. It's time to get action. Then there's a sort of slower kind of pathway that goes to the front of the brain. And the brain goes, Should we? Should we act? Is this important? Yeah. And often if the emotional part of the brain's already made a decision, it's really hard for the logic brain. To jump in and go, actually, we're going to reel it back. Because once that noradrenaline and adrenaline gets released, we start to feel the physical feelings of arousal or anxiety, which is pounding heart, uh, butterflies, goosebumps, sort of tremoring. It's really hard for, for people, even though we might understand logically what's happening to dial it back. Almost impossible for dogs who, you know, don't have necessarily that, that higher order of thinking to go. These are just feelings. I can work through it.
1: Yeah, totally. And I guess the last thing that I would like to discuss with you was, and I saw on your Instagram you had like puppy life stages, and mm. I took some screenshots to remember, but I, I would like—I was really interested when I saw it, and that was very, very specific. And, um, and like, you know, so you had two different posts. And can you tell us a little bit about the transition period, socialisation, juvenile, sexual adulthood, and neutral development? I thought it was really interesting how wow. this everything's. Is a-
0: a deep dive for me. And that was um that was assignment number one for this year for my course. So, you oh, know, cool. really getting a good test on the old, uh, old the old coursework. Um I think probably the interesting thing, you know, you already alluded to this at the at the start panels, which is it's great to have a knowledge of these periods, but they're not set in stone. You know, your client saying, Is there's another fear period, we've got time to catch up on this, right? Um, these things aren't really set in stone and we know for different breeds and different sizes of a dog that development can happen slower or faster. Um, but I think as trainers, we often focus on that real critical socialization period, which is generally appreciated to be sort of 6 to 12, 14, 16 weeks. Um, and I think for most clients, that is a really important time for you to think about. There's probably not a lot of importance in us knowing, you know, in this neonatal period where pups are little beans and they can kind of only smell and drag themselves around, um, you know, after that they become a little bit more mobile and they start to be a bit curious and explore the, the den and be a bit more independent from mum. But the big development step is when these pups go to their new homes and they go through that socialization period, which is really critical for them experiencing the world, seeing new things.
1: So, real quick, before yeah. you continue, do you think that the critical period is because we're le- letting them go at seven weeks old, oh, or it's happening at seven weeks anyway?
0: Actually happening probably before then probably closer to six weeks. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it is a it is a natural development stage. So let's say you were just keeping a pup from your litter, you would see pups go through this stage where they start to become much more independent, more mobile, moving around. You know, starting to play and learn through play with each other. Really important for development. Um. And then after this, pups go through sort of a bit more of a juvenile phase, whether in this gangly awkward teenager kind of phase which we're all really familiar with where your clients come to you as a trainer and go I had this angel dog and now it won't recall and it's pushing boundaries and these are really similar to juvenile stages in people where you know there's some risk taking behavior and trying new things and um I guess behavior may seem to regress in those in there somewhere there's sort of debates about how many fear periods dogs go through to the point where I tend not to really stress too much about if I see a dog suddenly showing fearful behaviour then and we have great foundations, I tend to go, yeah, look, this could very much be a fear period, usually happens between about five to seven months, and then another one later down the track, you know, somewhere between nine to 11 months. It's not set in stone. I'm sure there's lots of people that will, you know, be able to correct or disagree, Um but, yeah, behaviour is very fluid and as dogs age, we have different hormonal kind of releases and lots of changes that can occur. Um, but for most dogs, the final sort of, well, not the final, but the, the longest stage is when they sort of reach sexual maturity and go into adulthood, which as we most people would understand is very different for a Chihuahua than it is a Great Dane because they've just got different amounts of growing to do. Um, the major reason I take this into account is choosing when to recommend desexing for dogs, um, which is its own whole podcast in itself because it's so nuanced and I don't often actively recommend desexing, uh, not full stop, but definitely in in young dogs I don't.
2: Very, very good. Um, How yeah, would you well, define a young dog?
0: It depends and <laughs> it's very boring, isn't it? It's all on a spectrum. That may as well be my, <laughs> my catchphrase today. Not on your um, business card. <laughs> yeah, I should put it on there. Uh, I tend to use the data that we do have to make broad recommendations. Um, so one of I guess that it's interesting for me. So one of my um, I guess my mentor in the biz uh, is or, or my my goal person who I'd love to be is is a trainer and vet um, called Esther who's from Germany and Esther's partner. Hans is one of the most amazing dog trainers. He um, has, you know, trained COVID detection dogs and done some just amazing stuff in Germany. If you haven't checked out their um, their stuff, I think their their, their business is called um, Kino Science. They're yeah, legendary. amazing people. Um, and so I've been really lucky to meet Esther a couple of times and have the chance to chat to her. And really interestingly, of the way that they manage dogs in Europe and Germany is really different to the way that we manage them here. Um, and so, um, in Australia, generally, we tend to desex dogs just as a given, and I do tend to recommend that for my average general practice clients. But for my behaviour cases, I probably make a bit more of a nuanced decision, and I tend to hold off desexing any dogs that I think are uh, have behavioural problems based in insecurity or in anxiety. Which can you dis-
1: discern the difference between when you're at GP and then you put the other code on where you're the behaviour? And, and you mean you would give a different um, age recommendation?
0: No, I would probably, well, sometimes I might. If I have a client that's like, look, I'm here with my three kids to get my vaccine and I will see you in one year, I'm probably more likely to recommend desexing to those dogs that the client's maybe not doing much training and they uh, maybe are more likely to struggle with an entire dog. So for a dog that has more sexual drive, that wants to roam, that wants to, um, I guess, compete for resources, particularly, you know, um, other dogs for breeding, that most of my general practice clients don't really have an interest in managing that behaviour. By its nature, most of my behaviour clients are working on behaviour. And so, some of them might come to me and say, look, I've got an eight-week-old puppy and I really just want to succeed with this dog. Great. If you put in foundational work, there's no reason why the average person can't own an entire dog. Hmm. But it's certainly not for everybody.
1: And Um, what's the minimum age?
0: Good question. So, yeah. um, Complex. The minimum age would be based on the situation. So there are some rescues that will desex dogs before they go out at eight weeks, which is obviously not preferable, but we actually know that the rate of the average person returning a dog to desex even for free is very, very low. So I think it's a responsible choice for them to make. Um, In my GP practice, I would say the minimum I would probably consider is, is six months, and there might be reasons that we do that for health conditions in particular. For most of my patients I recommend waiting until having one or two heats for most of my dogs is usually 10 to 18 months with the big caveat being I don't desex personally. <laughs> I don't do abdominal surgery so I hand it off to my lovely colleagues in the clinic so if if any of my clients um particularly I don't desex big dogs because it's a really challenging surgery. I find it really stressful. Although it's a routine surgery, it's extremely complicated. It's bloody, it's scary. Um, if you're a human person, you'd be in hospital for a week after having this surgery. So I give it the healthy respect it deserves and give it to my esteemed. Can
1: we give dogs vasectomies?
0: Colleagues. Uh so yeah, look, there are vasectomies available. I think the the most complex thing is that doesn't remove, I guess, sexual drive and many male behaviours in dogs um, and I think that most people that wish to desex their dogs don't have a need to retain the testosterone um, that's produced by having an entire dog. You still get testosterone from other parts of your body. Um, so we tend to just completely remove testicles when desexing. Um, but same thing, I would usually wait. It's much easier to wait for the boys because the surgery is much easier. That's one I'm happy to do um, and I typically would wait for most of my male dogs probably around two before making that decision um i also have some clients particularly behavior where we want to try before we buy we want to know what the dog could be like with the physical reduction in hormones but without the trauma and i use that kind of in inverted commas because desexing isn't inherently traumatic but for many dogs that struggle with handling separation and confinement it can be um we can use a chemical implant that's a bit like a microchip and we just place it between the shoulder blades and we get 12 months of chemical castration without needing to do any surgery. And so we can make an assessment over that period about whether re- reductions in those hormones are helpful for the dog's behaviour or whether they can actually maybe make it less helpful, in which case we might not desex that dog.
1: So while that chip isn't, I've never heard that before, so the yeah. chip's in the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, First of all, what is a chip doing? Like does it release something and are are you changing hormone levels or are you like um, making sure that they don't produce sperm?
0: Yeah. so both those things happen and so I think for many women they'll be really familiar with this as a contraception option it's it's pretty common in women as well um it's a different sort of flavor if you will for the male dogs but well, hold on, so like
1: women put chips in them so that they yeah. can't make it. oh wow yeah. sure <laughs> you heard that before
0: yeah um so it's it's not a chip per se it's more like a I guess like a little rod of um I guess it's biofilm or something i'm not sure that um, basically has a, a, a slow release of um, hormone suppression in it mm-hmm. i think the one in people is probably progesterone i'm not sure i'd have to double check um but in the male dogs it works by um produce re- reducing that testosterone which secondarily reduces s- sperm production so the dogs do become um, generally infertile after a period, um, the major risk is not all dogs return to fertility. So um, we don't use it in dogs that we think we might want to breed. I don't typically deal with a lot of dogs that people want to breed from, so it doesn't, yes, doesn't affect my work.
1: Mm. That's so cool. I've learned so much. You're very well-spoken. <laughs> it's a lot You've to answered. learn in an hour. I'm, yeah, I'm you, a you, bit blown away. <laughs> I've crossed off every single question that I've wanted to ask you and and I've learned much more. I guess the main reason why I wanted to get you on is, well, I guess we've never had a doctor on the show before, so that's pretty cool. We're stepping up in the world, me and Luke. Um, But I think it's more important to be that my biggest thing was, I'm not against vets, medication, all that sort of shit, obviously. I just think that it's just completely ludicrous, the type and the amount of dogs that I've been personally seeing more so in the last two months. I don't know, maybe I'm just seeing more of it, or maybe more people are talking about it, but I'm seeing such like just it's just negligence in my opinion sometimes i see when i say it's legit it's legit and we work on what has to happen and and i don't comment on that because it's legit but when i see just like lazy work i just it really affects me and of course it's you know it's our bread and butter as well if you're going to give advice to somebody i think the advice should be sound especially when people are you know paying massive prices and of course it takes a lot of emotional toll to kind of go through behavioral therapy just period not to mention all the confusion i think it's really important to have people like you and to be sharing this message to other behavior vets to do the work get hands on dogs get out there and and have trainers as friends and and competent trainers because there's a lot of people that are trainers that (laughs) really aren't worth anything um from from the amount of things and i I don't want to shit on too many people that's why i won't say names but i think it's important that we um we stay united and merge theory and the craft of training and they both have to come together. You can't, I don't think you should separate both of them. So, uh, Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really educational. Let everybody know where they can find you and how they can contact you if they need you.
0: Yeah, amazing. You can find my work at Michelle russell. I'm sure that'll be in the show notes somewhere.com. Um, so, that's my website and the Insta handle is Dr. Michelle Russell, same as Facebook, so you can hit me up there. Um, I do consult uh, telehealth, so if you've got listeners in, you know, um, New South Wales or um, locally that want to hit me up, please let me know. Always happy to to work with local trainers as well. Um, yeah, and I've got a couple of some regional events coming up soon. I'll be heading to Queensland later in the year and Shepparton, uh, uh, more local to Victoria. Um, yeah, later in the next couple of months.
1: That's so cool, and yes. Hit up Michelle. If you're a trainer listening, you have a cool contact here that any dogs that are out of our scope of helping and we do need medical intervention um, from firsthand experience, you've been awesome. And CCing me into the emails and you know keeping me up to date with what the situation was with our client, I think it was really professional. And everything that I read there, I was like, yeah, cool. I'm down with all of that. And um, and of course, learning new things all the time. So thank you so much for your work.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of Life With Your Dog. Please share with your friends if you're enjoying our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, Life With Your Dog Podcast. My name's Panos, and to keep up with my dog training adventures, tips and techniques, you can find me on Instagram at np__dog__training.com. My website, npdogtraining.com, or my YouTube channel, Nutris Poochers.
2: Thanks for listening, guys. My name's Luke. If you'd like to find out more about my dog training services, you can find me at www.kizuna, that's K I Z U N A K 9, C A N I N E, dot com.au. I'm also on Instagram at Kizuna k9 Training. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.